This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by PTZ Optics, helping churches live stream broadcast quality services on a budget. Visit PTZ Optics slash church makeover by November 16th to win a complete live streaming makeover for your church. It's Wednesday, October 17th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Peter Harris joins us to talk about the environment, climate change, and conservation. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I am with my co-host Mark Alley, our Editor-in-Chief. Hello, Mark. Hello, Morgan. Great to be here. It is. We're both here the same week at the same time, which is not necessarily going to be happening a lot in the next couple months. Huh? Enjoy it while it lasts, listeners. <laughs> yeah, right. Who is joining us today? Joining us today is Peter Harris. He's co-founder of Arosha, an international Christian nature conservation organization. He's been active in environmental concerns for nearly four decades and more. He's the author of Kingfisher's Fire, a story of hope for God's earth, which describes his vision for Christian engagement in protecting and renewing creation. And most importantly, he's written for Christianity Today, most recently in 2016, in an article entitled, Why Conservation is a Gospel Issue. I had a del- delightful opportunity to meet Peter face-to-face. Uh, oh, when was that now, Peter? That was April in Sacramento, Mark. Yeah, I'm delighted that P- you can join us. Welcome. Hi, Peter. How are you? Good to hear you, Morgan. Thanks very much. I'm well, and I'm halfway into a, a, a Manx gale here on the Isle of Man. There's Strong wind blowing, and it's nice to be inside listening to you. So for listeners who forgot where Isle of Man is located, would you like to tell them? It's in the middle of the Irish Sea, which is a politically hot place at the moment with Brexit negotiations going on. Uh, So just offshore from England and somewhere where I spent my childhood on holiday and then some time as a student working on local farms. And we've kept our friendships here ever since. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for being with us, and I'm looking forward to getting into our topic about the environment and conservation. Last week, the world's leading climate scientists released a sobering report, which claimed that there's only a dozen years to keep the Earth's climate from increasing by 1.5 degrees Celsius. If the planet fails to do so, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warned, the risk of drought, floods, extreme heat, and poverty for hundreds of millions of people will massively increase. It's a line in the sand, and what it says to our species is that this is the moment and we must act now, said Deborah Roberts, a scientist who worked on the report. This is the largest clarion bell from the science community, and I hope it mobilizes people and dents the mood of complacency. Many remain skeptical, acknowledging the reality of climate change, but wondering if the effects will be that drastic that soon. Bjorn Lomberg, director of the Copenhagen Consensus Center in USA Today, argued that, quote, Climate impacts have an ever smaller impact on humanity compared to previous eras because of prosperity and resilience. Two recent articles in the magazine Pacific Standard point out that some science and political leaders are skeptical that governments will or can do anything in the 12-year deadline the report gives, and that others still disagree with the panel's recommended next steps, going so far as to call them, quote, magic and arguing for a different approach. 
though equally radical. This week on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss the report's allegations, the human impact of climate change, and why a Christian response to this report must be rooted in a bigger vision than halting climate change. All right, Mark, time for our gut check. I'm curious, yeah, what you had as far as your initial reaction to this Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. Yeah, having heard many reports about climate change and the coming uh, and, and the other deadlines that uh, scientists have given for it, I will admit to a bit of skepticism about the latest report, not in terms of the reality of global warming. That is clearly, in my mind, it's a clear issue that something is happening pretty enormously and dramatically. As far as the nature of the catastrophe, when it will happen, and if it will be a catastrophe or something more slow, I tend to be more skeptical, but I will admit that I am not a scientist. So I'm probably one of one of many Americans who, when uh, a new report comes out on any topic saying it's been scientifically proven, We've heard so many of those reports reversed that I'm at the age now where I go, okay, well, we'll pay attention and we'll see what's going to happen, but we're not going to panic. So whether that's my head in the sand or realism, I have no idea, but that's my honest gut reaction. That is what we asked for. I would say that my gut check was a little bit hmm, tempered by everything else that was going on in the news. People talk when you're doing a lot of work, they talk about the tyranny of the urgent, at least in terms of how it can distract you from longer term projects. I would also say that a version of that applies to when I consume news. There's something that can feel extremely urgent. And on the one hand, 12 years, kind of urgent, especially when it's talking about all the things that have to be done for this not to happen. On the other hand, there's so many news stories that are breaking all the time that can feel more sensationalized into what will happen in the next 24 hours or week or our elections next month. And so sometimes I can have a difficulty concentrating on something that is that far out. I also think that this is an issue that I just wanted to spend more time on and thinking through, which is why I'm glad we're talking about today on the podcast. Peter, I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about who wrote this report and what the gist of it is. I can. I'm going to start with similar disclaimers to both of you, I think. It's important anybody listening to this realizes not only am I not a climate scientist, I'm not a scientist at all. I'm very grateful to hang out with scientists, particularly ones who are Christians who are very moderate, particularly Catherine Hayhoe, with whom I have had the privilege of working over recent years, who's a most remarkable, respected climate scientist and a forthright Christian. So in a way, you're listening in to my own um, gut reactions. But from a factual point of view, this latest report was requested by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change because at Paris in 2015, in an agreement that was then signed in April 2016, the climate agreement internationally agreed, and at at this point, your own government was involved, that we had to keep the temperature rise down to two degrees, temperature rise above pre-industrial levels was reckoned to be the maximum we could contemplate, even with the technological fixes, the geoengineering, the, all the kind of mitigation that we could throw at it. Even so, two degrees was reckoned to be the limit of what would be safe. But there was a, a great deal of concern from many there, particularly island states who are seeing sea level rise impacting them now coastal communities where storms are sweeping in very much more strongly than they did. There was a 
there was an aspiration towards 1.5%. So this latest report was a technical report that looked at the difference between 1.5 degrees of temperature rise and 2 degrees of temperature rise and was asking the question, does it matter? And what are the likely impacts of each scenario? And right away, for your listeners, I would really like to recommend a website. And if you go to interactive.carbonbrief.org, there's a beautiful scenario playout based on the 70 leading papers on the subject of the difference in all the areas from sea levels to storms to agriculture to everything else between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees centigrade and what that is going to mean in terms of risk to us. So this latest report is simply reporting on that difference. But the takeaway headline is we now know this is not new. We've seen one degree temperature rise over the last 100 years. We're in this already. It's not we're just starting to think about it. We now know the extraordinary risks we are running by putting carbon into the atmosphere. And essentially, this 12-year figure is, if you think that every year we're putting carbon into the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases, which are raising the global temperature, they're going to be there for a 1,000 years unless we work out incredibly clever ways of dragging them back out of the atmosphere again at scale. Um, every year we add to these risks and every year we're seeing the impacts multiply. And briefly, the ones that are already multiplying are the number of deaths from heat stroke, crop yields declining, slowing economic growth and costs, the rapidly rising insurance costs. Even this most recent uh, storm Florence is reckoned to cost somewhere north of 17 billion US dollars. Uh, poverty and water stress. So these are major impacts that we're already seeing. I have the privilege of being in 15 countries a year, typically around the world, often in the poorer world, where people are far less protected from these impacts than we are in the wealthy world. And this is something that's been with us for quite a while now and is accelerating. Peter, I'm glad that you've started to talk about what the threats to human suffering are because of climate change. But just to, to spell this out, more specifically for our listeners. The idea behind the fact that the climate will be increasing is that it ends up melting a lot of the ice caps that we have, which in turn raise the sea level of the oceans. Is that correct? Yes. So we're looking at uh, at 1.5 degrees centigrade, the probability of an ice-free Arctic summer at least once is 10%. At two degrees centigrade, it's 80%. You can go on multiplying up these, these statistics, but as that ice melts, so the sea water uh, is, is rising, and uh, it's happening at quite a rate now. Catherine Hayhoe has made it very clear that the business of science is getting rid of the alternative explanations. We should be skeptical. God made us skeptical. We care deeply about the truth if we're Christians. I'm far more keen, actually, to ask the question of why Christians in particular, and perhaps particularly in your country, almost uniquely in your country, have had to grapple with this issue in quite a painful way. That's not been the case anywhere else in the world. And that's always intrigued me. I've made 30 visits now to the USA over the last 30 years. And the exceptionalism of your context 
is something that fascinates me. And the science is basically settled. And if I can add one personal story to this, my father worked with Sir Richard Doll, who was the medic who established the link between cancer and smoking, lung cancer and smoking. And the process that Richard Doll and colleagues like my father worked through for 30 years of denial on the part of interested investors and industry and even government that gained revenue from taxes from smoking was absolutely paralleled. Now, you won't find a Christian who's going to argue with the fact that smoking increases your risk of lung cancer dramatically. Why is it that when the science is so much more solid on climate change, Christians are disposed to argue with the science, even though none of them are scientists? Uh, Lomberg, who you cited earlier, is a statistician. He's not a scientist. What's going on here? That's the question I think Christians should be intrigued by. From your experience, talk about the, uh, the contrast between what you see in other countries. Well, there's almost a definite line. The poorer the country, the more climate change concerns central to what the church is talking about and grappling with. In poorer countries, irregular rainfall, violent climate event, uh, events, heat waves, which are becoming extreme, these are impacting people's livelihoods very, very directly. In wealthier countries, people live at a mediated relationship with their environment. And so it's possible to be completely oblivious to all of this. They're not only experiencing climate more directly uh, as individuals, but then this is, a, this is a point of conversation in other countries, or there is an acceptance of the, of the science of global climate change. Well, there really, Mark, there really is no question about the science. The science is settled. Actually, the fundamental science of climate change was settled 150 years ago. But the real arguments begin when people get into the political solutions and the policies that people are urging should be adopted in order to deal with the influence. That's where the, the, the trouble begins. And in a situation where you have a very active democracy, as you do in your country, this kind of thing can become politicized very fast. Uh, and that's unfortunate, probably, because this isn't essentially a political question at the level of the science. It becomes political when we start to discuss what we should do about it. But what I want to argue is that what Christians should do about it, first of all, is care, because those who are impacted now around the world are the poor. There's absolutely no doubt about that. We're seeing it in multiple ways the migration of the rural poor to cities because farming is no longer possible. The ways that coral reef, for example, is 80% gone with a 1.5 degree temperature rise and 100% gone with a two degree temperature rise. And a billion people depend on coastal fisheries for their livelihood. And coastal coral reef is the, is the kind of nursery for all of 25% of marine species. So we should care because now the poor of the world are impacted. It's not politics, it's compassion. So there are really two issues here that uh, you find people objecting to in the U.S. One is the very science itself, even though you're saying the people who are objecting often aren't scientists, and then the solutions, even if they do accept that there is changes. Is that the correct summary? Yes, I think that's right. And I think there has been an unfortunate alliance, which has not historically always been the case in your country, between environmental concerns and other agendas that Christians 
find very difficult to cope with. These have become politically bolted together in a random way. So frequently people have said to me, if you're asking me to care about the climate, you're asking me to support gay marriage or other issues like that, because they come in a package. That, that's the nature of your political system, and it's not the nature of the political system elsewhere. That is the problem. It's become politicized. But it, 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 it isn't, for Christians anyway, a political issue, in my view. Science isn't a political issue. We care about the truth, and science is the process of establishing the truth. And with regard to the truth of whether we are causing the climate to change by our carbon-intensive economy, there really is no discussion left. I know Christians who disagree profoundly about what we should then do. I know Christians like former Congressman Bob Inglis, who's very much on the Republican side of things in his economics, who sees one way of dealing with it. And I know Christians on the left who are much happier with state intervention who see it another way. They should have a good debate, but we shouldn't be arguing about whether it's happening or that we should care for those most impacted. One of the earliest conservationists in American history at a national level was Theodore Roosevelt, who was anything but a liberal. It is interesting that the environmental movement has become associated with liberalism when, in fact, there could be a case that it's actually a conservative. It's actually a conservative cause. Conservation. (laughs) I think that's moving back, actually. It's quite interesting now, partly because if we're going to be hopeful about this, it's business solutions and business opportunities that these extraordinarily new and turbulent times are creating. And so a conservative audience is realizing that there are real costs to not doing anything and real commercial opportunities from jumping into the new technologies. Peter, I'm I'm curious, what is the way that your organization ends up advancing these convictions that you have? The way we work is essentially we are a global organization we're very ground up. So local Christian communities approach us with the pressing issues that they face, whether it's loss of uh, forest or drinkable water or pollution or whatever it is. And then together, the Arosha Global Family helps them design programs that both meet those needs and also go some way to showing to the people in the area where these groups are working, the character of God by by the way that they undertake the project. Perhaps I could give you an example. So if I could cite the work of the Arosha Kenya organization, the, the problem there is that the coastal forest of Kenya used to extend for 4,000 kilometers from Mozambique in the south right up to Somalia in the north. And now you've got more or less 40 kilometers left only. And obviously, within that, many, many unique species are found because it's a fragment of what was an enormous habitat. And many millions of dollars, including from USAID, were were spent on trying to reverse this deforestation that was so rapidly taking place. But our, our local colleagues, because they were from that community, found that people were chopping the forest down to pay secondary school fees because without those possibilities of education, you're poor for life. And it seemed to be a simple forest or education question. But but as people who believe that God made the world to work and that he loves people and place, we set about finding a solution. And basically, we turned the bank, the forest into the banker for the school fees by working with the, with the Kenyan Wildlife Service and Forestry Department 
everybody visiting the forest, the tourists nearby who visited, the money went to pay school fees. And uh, over 15 years now, hundreds of kids have been put through secondary school. One or two are now even working for Arosha. And it's it's a genuine win-win solution. And and I think that's a typical Arosha project. You You have what seems to be an acute problem. We face it currently in Ghana, where there's a threat to mine one of the last beautiful forests of the country, which supplies drinking water for two million people in Accra. And there's attempts to put a bauxite mine in there. That's the problem. And then we work with local communities, with with uh, scientists to work out what the real situation is, to find alternatives for livelihoods. And then long term, because the incarnation is our model, we slowly see change come about in human communities and in the places themselves. And, and that's what we do. What would you say makes your philosophy of work uniquely Christian? Christians would say we have the possibility of knowing the living God because of the life of Jesus Christ laid down for what John calls the cosmos, for the world. And um, so that's what makes our work distinctive. I suppose we're unusual in that we really pray about what we're doing. We expect that God will help us. We welcome all comers because the love of God lives in even our imperfect hearts. That that gives a flavor to what Christians do. But much of our actual work is very, very similar to what everybody in conservation does. You you recognize the truth of a problem and you try and design ways of, of solving that problem. And it's urgent. We've, you know, extinction of species is running at somewhere around about 2,000 times the background rate we would expect. And incidentally, those figures come from the leading Christian in the field, whose chair of was chair of the Species Survival Commission, Simon Stewart. You know, there are Christians not just working for Arosha, but there are Christians working throughout the global conservation effort in hundreds of organizations. It's very encouraging. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, Visit UGM.org. I would think a subtle but in the long term obvious impact of your work as a Christian in this organization is making the connection between the creation and the creator. And what I mean by that is let me give one example. You were just talking about the loss of species. It is apparent as we look at the created order that God is a God who is tremendously interested in diversity. He must love diversity because He's created billions of different species of all sorts of levels of creation. As you work in this world and work sincerely and pray in it, I would think at some point it gives you a little glimpse of the magnificence of who God is, 
uh, and the mystery of who God is uh, and what he loves. Yeah, and we have somebody to thank. I mean, that's, I see so many of my friends working in conservation who are awestruck by what they discover. And I'm so glad that, that we as Christians have somebody to thank for that and somebody to praise for that. It's quite funny. One of the early scientists in the Victorian times was asked, what did studying nature teach him about the character of God? And he said, God must have an inordinate love for beetles because there's just so many, so many, many different species. And, um, and uh, <laughs> it does say in Psalm 104, when it details all the species present in the Middle East of the time, most of which have now gone from the region, it says, in wisdom, God made them all. So it follows that it's in folly that we reduce in any way that diversity, even from the point of view of human interest. Somebody said to dispose of species as we are currently doing is like burning a library without reading the books. We know the huge percentage of our pharmacy that comes from uh, the animal world. And, and there are multiple ways in which we just scratch the surface of what we know. So to just destroy it is irresponsibility of the most extraordinary kind, really, even without the, the whole dimension of what it says about how important we think God's commands to us are to care for his creation and that he's made us in his image as the one species on earth with a particular responsibility for care. So I'm wondering for people who are listening to this podcast and are saying, how would I actually think about the environment and conservation and creation care as a Christian? What are the first things that you would tell them, Peter? Scripture is really clear for us. I would give them three. There are three essential components to the biblical message. The first is what's around us is God's handiwork. We use the word environment, which is tending to suggest it's our environment. It belongs to us. It doesn't. Uh, Psalm 24 tells us in verse 1, the earth is the Lord's. So that makes it holy or sacred, if you like, not in a pagan way, but just full of deep personal significance. It's our creator's handiwork. Secondly, the analysis of what's wrong for the Christian is more profound than saying we don't have enough money for conservation or we don't have good legislation or the science is complicated. The biblical analysis from all the prophets is that a broken relationship to God will destroy the marine environment, the birds of the air will die, says Hosea. It's, it's a widespread ecological problem if we do not have a restored relationship with our God. So what we're seeing globally in religious terms is the export of consumerism as a religion. The idea that the more stuff you have, the happier you'll be. And that is ecologically toxic. So the Bible says the problem is our broken relationship with God. And the third wonderful element in the Bible messages is in Romans chapter 8, and that is that the whole creation will be drawn into the glorious liberty of the people of God. So there is hope. I think a lot of my environmental friends or conservation friends really are in quite a despairing state. They've done all they know how to do, lived very sacrificial lives, busted themselves to save a forest or clean a stream or do this stuff. And actually, all the trends are going pretty much in the wrong direction and very rapidly. And so for the Christian, just like any other form of suffering, we live it with the hope of the resurrection before us. Um, I've sometimes said that I do think my work now in conservation isn't so different from when I was a, a parish minister 
in northwest of England, and I had to sit by the bedside of a dying friend. It was good to be there. It was good for us to share the presence of God and the, the hope of the resurrection. And sometimes when we know we're potentially going to lose a conservation battle, and honestly, I doubt if we will keep the temperature rise below two degrees within the next you know, 15 years. It's unlikely with the quantity of greenhouse gas we're continuing to pump into the atmosphere. What we have to do this for is, is out of the hope that the Lord will not abandon his creation. He'll stir up his church worldwide to be part of the financial and commercial fixes, to be agriculturalists, to be lawyers, to be mission partners who care for the place as well as the people. And the church is slowly waking to this. And the church is the biggest non-governmental organization the world has. There's phenomenal hope in that. The most recent MICA global conference in the Philippines that my colleague Dave Bookless went to, he said it was second nature for the majority world missions organization to see creation care as being at the heart of the gospel. Well, that's something that you can use the word praying. Many of my secular conservation friends have been praying for the Christian church to wake up to this for a long time, because mostly where biodiversity is on, on the earth's surface, the people who live there are Christians. It's in the global south. So if the church gets it, it's going to be amazing. It'll be seen in the landscape. So, Peter, I wanted to share one area of tension that I've felt when I've entered into these conversations, and it was something that you hinted at in your example of this Kenyan coastline. And that's the fact that we do know that some of the, the best news that's happened in recent decades has been around how many people have left poverty behind and all the people who have been able to experience a massive change with regards to living conditions and amount to eat and life expectancy and so forth. And at the same time, we know that this has also coincided with a lot of environmental concerns being raised. I'm wondering to the extent that you ever feel that there's a tension between doing advocacy to bring people out of poverty, advocating for market solutions that seem to help people leave poverty behind, and also the fact that we do know that there's been environmental damage and destruction done too. Yes, I, I think it is a tension, but I actually think that it doesn't take much imagination to see that models have to change in response to growing knowledge. I heard of a very interesting conversation recently between a government minister and a, and a Christian working in the fossil fuels industry. And, and uh, he was asked what, what would be his view if he was seeing it from the Christian side of things about the tremendous gains that we've seen. I mean, I'm alive today because of the fossil fuel industry. I have no adrenals. And so I live on on uh, hydrocortisone in, 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 <laughs> in, a, in medicine form. So the, we've all benefited immensely. And this, this government minister said thoughtfully, well, if I were God, I would say I gave them a quick acceleration through cheap fossil fuels into a far more prosperous way of living. But it never occurred to me that they would carry on doing that to the point where they were harming themselves as they now are doing through climate change, through depletion of species, through impoverishment that industrial farming brings to the soil. Nobody would wish to argue against the benefits that we've seen across the world as, as living standards have risen and access to technology has improved. But it's got to be kept up to date. And we now understand far better 
the downsides of the early industrial model. And we simply need a new model, which is going to continue these benefits rather than undercutting them. And what we're now seeing is we're undercutting those benefits, particularly actually when it comes to wealth creation, we're seeing a tremendous uh, disparity between the very wealthy and the very poor. And that isn't something that a Christian can feel easy about or comfortable with. Poverty is one thing, but misery is another. And uh, we, we cannot accept this tremendous growth among those who are desperately poor in the world. I did think a comment you made earlier about how we are buffered against the natural world. And I, I've experienced, I've thought about that myself a lot. I mean, I go from a, an air-conditioned or heated home, I spend just a couple seconds outdoors, and then I get into an air-conditioned or heated car, and then I just spend a couple seconds outdoors, and then I get into an air-conditioned or heated office. And that pretty much constitutes my entire day. Now, my hero here, Morgan, <laughs> is a little different. She bikes to and work from work, and she's a very outdoor person. But, but I do spend the majority of my time at the office, too, yeah, like you, yeah. right? So, you know, I've gone through periods where I just, you know, just said, this is ridiculous. I mean, I, I don't... I don't. I don't live in my environment anymore. So I'll, I'll go through periods where I just roll down my window, no matter what the temperature is. That lasts for a week. <laughs> but being wealthy does make it hard to actually live in the created world. It's really difficult. Yeah, Jesus did warn us about that. I think you just have to take practical steps, Mark. And I know you do this. At, at some point in your year, you expose yourself to the life of others and live their reality for a while. And uh, that's very doable. Wealth enables us to do that. Wealth enables us to go and visit, even with people within a few, often a few hundred meters of us whose reality is utterly different. Um, it's, not, it's not hard, but I think it is incumbent upon us. You know, the gospel makes us we, doesn't it, in two ways. We share a creator. So when Paul in Acts 17 looks at that huge and diverse crowd, he says, we, we are God's offspring. So the, the character of being created makes us we with other people and to a degree we with the creation. And then the, the, the peace that Jesus Christ brings, this extraordinary possibility of breaking down hostilities and differences and the power of money and the hope that well-being in the material sense is going to lead to any permanent well-being. All of these things give us the possibility of relationship with with other people. Miranda and I are proud to count amongst our friends. Well, we had one of the wealthiest ladies in your country for some years very closely. And we've also got friends who are actually unsure where the next meal might possibly come from if they're, if they're farming in rural Kenya. So I think this is a phenomenal Christian privilege to be part of a, a worldwide community and even a very diverse community in the in the places we live in our own country. We've mentioned a couple times the way that so many of us, both here in this room recording it and also presumably our listeners, live lives that are really buffered from nature, from much of the biodiversity that, Peter, you've had the chance to witness and experience uphand. And so at times, I don't think we always know exactly what we might be, quote unquote, fighting for or trying to preserve, or, you know, the nature that you love and that you've worked with all the times is just not something that is on necessarily the average American's radar. So what type of resources are there for people, Peter, who don't necessarily have the time or means to travel to some of these places? 
that they can either watch or take advantage of to learn more about what's out there? The Russia USA's real emphasis is love your place. And and that's really how they gather people. They don't want people to necessarily expect that they can go to the Amazon or even Yosemite. But they're trying to encourage people to love your place. And they have resources for how you can turn your backyard or even your window box, how your church grounds, they have resources to help you to transform those things to be something that glorifies God. They run the equivalent of a vacation Bible school every year that lots of children are doing. And they, the, the, there's just tons of resources. So it's not difficult. I, I don't think heroism is a helpful model for us as, as Christians. I think we have to understand, like Paul said in that great sermon in Acts 17, God determined the exact times and places where people should live so that they might reach out for him and find him. And I think it's really a question of getting more deeply involved where we are rather than getting on a plane, heaven forbid, and going somewhere exotic to see what it means to love creation. Uh, And there's an irony here, too. In urban contexts, we work in one of the most crowded and polluted boroughs of London. There are farm, we've had over 100 bird species on this site, which we transform from waste ground to a country park for the local community who are primarily Sikh, Muslim and Hindu. We did it as Christians because that's what the community wanted. Because farmland in Britain is so intensively sprayed and chemicalized and all the rest of it, it's biologically inert. We've had over 100 species of birds on that site. It's hopping with life and insects because there's never been a drop of chemicals on it. So often cities are the place to begin. Just because you're urban doesn't mean you don't live in creation. It's just a question of, of finding it. So please do look at the US pages for resources. So if you're worried about carbon emissions, Arosha will take care of those with climate stewards. We soak them up in the forests of Ghana and create jobs and restore biodiversity in the process and other projects too. So climate stewards can help you if you're prepared to learn the truth about how much carbon you're putting into the atmosphere. And I would say on a very on a very local and uh, practical level here in DuPage County, I recently signed up for a newsletter to come from our uh, from the Forest Preserve, which preserves uh acreage of land for forest and lakes and rivers. And it regularly has meetings one can go to to learn more about keeping the environment clean, keeping water clean, ideas for de-icing, don't involve salt, which is pretty pretty bad for the environment around it. So there are lots of organizations already working on this in our very midst. I think that's fantastic. Well, I'm getting the newsletter. I haven't gone to a meeting yet. But I will admit that this conversation is prompting you to do just that. <laughs> I'll send you my Hound of God emails, Mark. Okay, you know, that sounds fair. You could expect it around January when the temperatures are really good. I'll say, have you been out yet? <laughs> okay. Well, Peter, thank you so much for this really rich discussion. I know Mark mentioned this last week, but our article on trees this month, it's called What Trees Teaches About Life, Death, and Resurrection, is also a very mesmerizing way to think about how nature is really intimately involved with our faith. And so I recommend that to people as well. On your website, you've also got Cara Daniel's wonderful article about how Christians are coping with the recognition of the, what she calls the thinning of life this dramatic decline in species and in wildlife. It's very profound, and you commissioned it, so you should be proud of it. We'll put it in the show notes. 
People who have feedback can leave that for us. We're on Twitter at CT Podcast. You can send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You know, Mark, one of the ways that we're able to do this show is because people support Christianity Today. And we have lots of people who give to the work that we do. And I know that we say every week that you're the editor-in-chief, but you know, tell us a little bit more about what that means sometimes. Well, one of the things it means is uh, I write editorials, which we call our Where We Stand uh, article every in every issue of CT. We're one of the few magazines that still runs editorials. Uh, most magazines have given up that practice. Newspapers still do it, but not magazines. But it's kind of it's been part of our history, and we continue to do it. Uh, it is one of the more uh, I will admit uh, burdensome responsibilities to try to weigh into any given issue because most of them are very complicated. Uh, and then try to address them in a way that's biblical, theological, readable, and all within 780 words. So it is a challenge. Uh, I'm not the only one who does it, but I make sure it happens when I don't do it. For example, Matt Reynolds just wrote an editorial on abortion and Roe v. Wade and the legal implications of that. It was, it was When we can get R- Matt to write an editorial, we are really blessed because he is, has extraordinary gifts in that matter. It is just one of the things we, we try to address and, and speak into for, for, for our movement and but for, for the United States and the world in general. How do you pick your topic? There's three or four of us that get together every month, and we each theoretically are supposed to come to the meeting with two or three ideas. <laughs> but depending on people's schedule, that sometimes it does, doesn't doesn't happen. And sometimes as editor-in-chief, I pull my editor-in-chief card and say, this is what we're going to do. But it's better when it's a collegial. Very cool. So... Everyone who wants to support this podcast and support this work as we do is leading the church by giving them convicting editorials. You can do that by going to morect.com slash quick to listen, morect.com slash quick to listen. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and we get to hear from everybody about what has brought them joy in the past week. You ready to go, Mark? Yeah, I think I alluded to it last week. I, I uh, kiddingly announced it as a fishing trip, but it was actually a riding retreat in which I take my little 16-foot trailer and I went off to a state park in the cent- center of Illinois. And I did enjoy my, the created order in a fresh way. Uh, that is to say, it was it, it, we had all manner of weather from wind and rain to sunny. Uh, I was lo- overlooking a lake. So there were, in fact, moments in which it was, uh, which I could very sincerely and and. and uh, spontaneously praise the Lord for what was around me. I hardly got any fishing in because of the bad weather, but that forced me to sit down and stick with my computer and do some writing. All right. Where can people find you outside of this? I pull together something called the Galley Report every week, which you can find at christianitytoday.com slash the Galley Report. That's spelled G-A-L-L-I. All right, Peter, let's hear from you. So Mark did the outdoor thing. Let me do, in deference to him, the indoor thing. I had to be in the car uh, this week for various reasons. And one of the most exciting things that's happening now is that a lot of Christian musicians are writing new music that does justice to this understanding of a wider gospel that will not just bless us as people, but bless the whole creation. And I was listening to music by Sandra McCracken, uh, Jill Phillips, Andy Gullahorn here in the UK, Gareth Davis-Jones, Sarah Groves, all of whom are part of a, of a concerted effort. Uh, which Arosh has been facilitating, but others too, to write new music for the church. And that just gives me joy because I grew up in a more conventional Christian home where a lot of the music seemed to imply that I shouldn't care about anything apart from some distant place called heaven and just hang on till I got there. 
Uh, and that was rather a pity in retrospect. <laughs> Peter, where can people find you after they're done listening to this podcast? Should they wish to join me uh, at one of the Arosha centers around the world, or they can find the Arosha social media stuff if you Google Arosha International. By the way, uh, Arosha is spelled capital A, new word, R-O-C-H-A, if you're going to Google that. All right, my precious moment was what I did on Saturday and Sunday. It's an annual event that takes place in Chicago and a couple other cities in the United States called Open House Chicago, and essentially a lot of different nonprofits and businesses and skyscrapers and other interesting warehouses turned into art studios, and you name it. They open up to the public over the weekend. There's about 250 buildings that are open from 9 to 5 or around then, and I did that on both days in Chicago. It's something I try to take advantage of every single year because I just love exploring in the city and learning more about what's inside and what's going on, all these different places. It's also a good excuse to see a different neighborhood that I might not always spend time in. So I really enjoyed doing that. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. We have exciting news this week. We are finally at long last on Spotify. So you should be able to get us wherever you find your podcasts. But yes, I'm really excited that we're finally on Spotify. As of this week, the music on this show is done by Sweeps. And thank you to everyone who rates and reviews the show on Apple Podcasts. We truly appreciate hearing from you guys all the time. We'll see you next week. 